You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Uh, Today we're going to be reading from the book of Proverbs. That's Proverbs chapter 26 uh, from verse 22 to 28. That is found on page 548 um, in the Bibles found in the pew. Um, If you do not have a Bible, um, please take one from the pew as our gift to you. Hear now the word of the Lord. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body, like like the glaze covering of an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. A lying tongue hates its its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All rise. Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20 in page 822 in your pew Bibles. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now Jesus, when he came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Be seated, please. 
Once again, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve as a pastor here. Now, just to keep us all on the same page, we are in week five of the season of Epiphany and in week five of our sermon series on identity. We've been calling this series Practicing the New Self. Human identity is not static, it is dynamic. It's something that you have, but it's also something that you embody and that you live. So think about it this way, just as birth gives a baby identity in the family as a child, just as marriage gives a husband and wife identity as a couple, just as enrolling in school gives a young person identity as a student, so baptism into the Christian faith gives a person identity in Jesus. And that's not the end of the story, that's the beginning. The new identity as either a child or a spouse or a student or as a follower of Jesus must be lived. It's something that must be practiced. And what a gift it would be if that were only true about the good and healthy identities uh, and sources of identity that we have, but isn't it sad that this is also true about the unhealthy and the harmful and the false sources of identity that all of us have? We, we don't just practice the good stuff. We practice the harmful stuff too. And so the purpose of this sermon series has been one of, you might say, deconstruction and reconstruction. Deconstructing false places of identity and then reconstructing an identity that is rooted in the love and grace and mercy and joy of Jesus in the good news of the gospel. And just to kind of catch us all up, here's where we've been over the past few weeks. We started with, you are not what you do. And then you are not your body image. And then you are not your sexual appetite. Last week was, you are not your money and your possessions. Today is, you are not what people say about you. You're not your reputation. As we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Question, how much should you care about what other people say about you? Now, if you're American, you're going to be tempted to say, not at all, right? Americans don't care what other people say about them. Is that true? I don't know if that's true. Our society, I think, is deeply ambivalent about this question. And by ambivalent, I mean of two minds. On one hand, we love our rugged independence. We agree with Joan Jett, who famously sang, I don't give a about my reputation, right? <laughs> Are you allowed to swear in church? Probably not. Uh, <laughs> and our heroes just seem to be people who, our heroes are people who don't, who seem to not care what anybody else thinks about them, right? But on the other hand, we are very careful about managing our public image. We're very aware of what is socially acceptable and what is not. We're aware of what our friends like and what our friends don't like, what our friends expect and do not expect from us. The online reputation management industry, which I was not aware of until I was doing research this week, uh, exceeds a billion dollars now, which means that as a country, we together collectively are spending over a billion year over year to protect and curate our public reputations. We live in fear of being canceled. So which is it? Do we care or do we not care? Here's a theory. I would offer that we care very much, but being viewed as someone who does not care is part of American identity. So it's not that we don't care, 
is that we would like to be known as people who do not care. And we're very careful to make sure. So here's a litmus test. If other people think that you care a lot about what other people think about you, do you care about that? <laughs> what a tangled web we weave, right? <laughs> now, few, person, few people, I think, personify this ambivalence more than Taylor Swift. I think she encapsulates this, this ambivalence. Because on one hand, she sings, shake it off, right? Which, aside, maybe the catchiest song of all time, maybe not, discuss. Um, but on the other hand, she pulls her concert documentaries from any streaming platform that also streams shows with other characters who criticize her, right? So which is it? She's not the only one. We all do this. We mostly just don't have the kind of money and leverage that she has or that other people have. But we would all like to live in a world where nobody can critique us, right? Your, now, just to be clear, your reputation and your character, these are different things. Your reputation is, by definition, in the hands of other people. It's outside of your control, right? But your character, that's not in the hands of other people. That's in your hands. It's inside of your control. Abraham Lincoln described the relationship between character and reputation like this. He says, character is like a tree and reputation is like its shadow. The shadow is what we think of it. The tree is the real thing. And that makes it sound like reputation doesn't matter very much. But here's the reality. People relate to each other largely based upon reputation. Victor Hugo, the author of Les Mis, put it this way. He says, whether true or false, what is said about people often has as much influence over their lives and particularly over their destinies as what they actually do. In other words, society kind of runs based on people's reputations. And in a digital age, reputation is inescapable. Not a day goes by without us judging each other or being judged by one another online. We like each other's tweets and Instagram posts. We get tracked by credit rating agencies. We give stars to our Uber drivers and they give us stars in return, right? The assignment of value to one another unfolds in real time at an unprecedented scale. And if you wonder, where is all of this going? You probably don't have to look further than the Chinese government's plan, which has been delayed, thankfully, to set up a social credit rating system, awarding points to citizens based on analysis of their behavior through their digital data trail. This is the logical endpoint of all of this, the digital quantification of a person's reputation. Now, if that's one story about reputation and identity, what's another story? Well, the Bible tells a very different story about the relationship between identity and what people say. It begins in creation. God names humanity, and then humanity is tasked with naming the world. And there's integrity between identity and words, between what things are and what is said about those things. In the beginning, there's no such thing as reputation. There's only reality and the words that correspond to reality. What do you call words that correspond to reality? Truth. That is what truth is, words that correspond to reality, right? But through what we call the fall into sin, which by the way begins with the temptation to think that perhaps words and reality are not the same thing. The serpent whispers into the ear of the first humans, did God really say? It's an attack on God's character and reputation and a subversive attack on human status. You're not very godlike, are you? Lies and deception enter the story. Now reality and reputation can be two different things. 
There can be what's real and there can be what is said about what's real and maybe they're not the same. You can be known as virtuous, but in reality be an evil villain. Or you could be known as an evil villain, but in reality be actually a pretty honest, gentle and kind person. And the church, the people of God throughout history are the people who are learning slowly with the help of the Holy Spirit to be secure in who they are and who are learning to tell the truth about themselves and to tell the truth about the world. And the new creation promised at the end of the biblical story is a, is a future of harmony between reality and words. No difference between reality and reputation. Truth reigns once again. Now, into that narrative arc about the relationship between truth and reputation, between reality and words, you have our text in the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, verses 20 through 22 through 28. Pretty disturbing text, not a cheerful read. If you're looking for something uplifting and encouraging to kick off your day tomorrow morning, maybe don't start here, right? But important words. And we're going to focus on one sentence. It's verse 22, and it goes like this. I'll read it twice. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels that go down into the inner parts of the body. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels that go down into the inner parts of the body. Now, as we talk about this, we're going to explore this theme, you are not what people say about you, and we're going to do so from two very kind of obvious angles, nothing tremendously creative here. You are not the good things people say about you, and neither are you the bad things about people say about you. So let's explore the good and the bad. Let's start with the good. Uh, this passage in Proverbs has a couple kind of key words in it, and let me just name some of them. Delicious, glaze, disguise speaks graciously, deception, lying tongue, flattering mouth. That's a fun list. These are the positive things that people can say about each other. Other people's words can sink down into your inner being and, and end up becoming part of your identity where you begin to believe the good things that people say about you. Now, this does immediate damage to who you are, but it also sets you up for long-term damage. The immediate damage is your sense of self, it's kind of obvious, your sense of self becomes puffed up, bloated, swollen. You begin to kind of believe your own press and a gap opens up in your mind between reality and your imagination. You imagine yourself to be wonderful, a gift to humanity, right? But the reality is being around you is not always such a gift. Sometimes you're inconsiderate. Sometimes you hurt people. Sometimes you're careless and you wound people without even knowing it. You don't even recognize the harm you're doing because at the very same time, you're being praised. Now, the immediate danger, therefore, is that you lose self-awareness. You no longer are aware of the impact that your presence has on other people. Now, that's just what happens right away. In the long run, this actually sets you up to be torn down because you and I both know nobody stays popular forever, right? The more accustomed you are to praise, the more painful criticism will be when it finally comes. And it always comes, right? Flattery sets up a weak identity that can be crushed. It paves the road for either defensiveness or victimhood. If you're used to being praised, then when you finally are criticized, how are you gonna respond? You'll either be defensive, you're wrong, that's not true, or you'll be a victim, it's not fair right? This is why Jesus gives this warning uh, in, the book of, in the Gospel of Luke. 
That's probably one of my least favorite warnings that Jesus gives. Jesus says, woe to you when all people speak well of you. Isn't it frustrating when Jesus warns you against getting the very thing that you want? <laughs> like, don't you want everyone to speak well of you? Y'all, I want everyone to speak well of me. They don't, and I find that exasperating, right? <laughs> ah, but it would be terribly destructive to my soul if everybody spoke well of me. And you know what? It would be for you too. There's a logic to what Jesus is saying. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Why? It feels good. So why, why the woe? <laughs> well, because it'll rot you from the inside if that happens. When people give you wonderful, flattering praise, you get to decide how deeply to let those words in. Will you let those delicious morsels all the way down into your inner self, to the deepest part of who you are, your identity? Will you believe that your good reputation is the real you? Now, the words that sink down into our souls and form us are not only the positive words, they're also the negative words. In other words, like the harsh, critical, destructive words can be just as formative to who we are and our sense of identity as the sweet compliments. So let's talk about the hard words. Socrates put it this way. He wrote, regard your good name as the richest jewel you can possibly be possessed of, for credit is like fire. When once you have kindled it, you may easily preserve it, but if you once extinguish it, you will find it an arduous task to rekindle it again. Uh, in our family's house, we have a wood-burning fireplace. That is one of the conditions I have about any house our family lives in. I don't care what the rest of it looks like, but there must be a word burning fireplace. This is true. It's something our family argues about. So uh, starting a fire can be a little bit hard sometimes, especially if the wood is, is a little bit wet and not, not dried properly. But once you get that fire going, you can put a wet log on a burning fire, keeps burning just fine. But once the fire goes out, hard to start again. This is what Socrates is saying is an old fashioned way of saying, a good reputation takes 20 years to build and five minutes to destroy. It might take you a long time to get that reputation fire burning, but somebody can come along and dump a bucket of water on it and it's out in a second. In other words, one strike and you're out. And we're living through a cultural shift where we have more information at our disposal than ever before, which means that you can quickly learn more good things about someone than ever before, but you know what you can also do? You can dig up more dirt on someone faster than ever before. And the internet means that your bad reputation never leaves you alone. It follows you everywhere you go. And it can make starting over, getting a fresh start, getting a clean start, impossible. Or at least it can feel impossible. Your worst decisions can live in other people's Instagram feeds, other people's blogs, Facebook photo albums, news websites, other people's email accounts. You can be canceled today for a mistake you made 50 years ago that you forgot about until somebody dredged it up from the murky, gunky bottom of the internet and then posts it online, right? And once it's out there, can you get that genie back in the bottle? You cannot. Once Pandora's box is open, you can't close it. It's very, very hard to restore a tarnished reputation. And y'all, if you're thinking right now that that's true for like leaders, capital L leaders, CEOs, politicians, celebrities, executive, pastors, other publicly visible people, y'all, it's just as true for all of us. And even though the internet has accelerated this, it's actually not a new problem. This is an ancient problem. 
I started doing some research earlier this week on verses in the Bible that warn against things like gossip or lying, slander, critical words, divisive speech, harshness, angry words. And I sort of planned on, on taking you through a few different Bible verses on this theme. And you know what I found? Too many verses. It's in every single book of the Bible, every single one from Genesis to Revelation. It's no exaggeration to say that the Bible considers using your words to harm others to be one of the worst things that a human being can do. Why? Why would that be such a big deal? Why can't you just shake it off? Well, because words of the whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner part of a person. And as delicious as it can be to hear a compliment about yourself, like, hmm, that tastes good, it might as very well be even more delicious to hear a bit of gossip about somebody else. Hmm, that tastes even better. And those words about somebody else will sink down into your heart and become a fundamental part of what you believe them to be. And we, we first learn this pain as, as children, usually, you see two, you go to school, you're on the playground, you see two other kids look at you, whisper in each other's ears, point at you and start laughing. You don't know what they're talking about, but is it good? It's not good. It hurts. And that pain deepens as teenagers when other students in a desperate attempt to secure their own sense of status in the group will tear you down to make themselves look big, right? And sometimes worst of all, the harsh critical words come from authority figures, from coaches and teachers and parents and grandparents. And if the child is young enough and has not yet developed a strong enough sense of self-worth, then those critical words will seep deep into their souls like poison. And children who were made in the image of God and whom, in whom God delights, they will begin to doubt their own goodness. They'll begin to believe that they are at their core bad, worthless, a disappointment, a failure. And as they grow up, they may become an adult who therefore bears a terrible burden of shame for never being good enough. And they might do different things with that shame. They might be crippled by it and really never able to kind of get going in life. Or they might appear to be incredibly successful, but their whole life is lived in defiance of what dad said about them years ago, right? Their whole life's been one long campaign to prove him wrong. And, when, and one of the implications of this is that when people have been deeply damaged by critical words, they're often unable to receive real encouragement. When someone does notice something good in them and points it out and gives them a genuine piece of encouragement, they can't receive it. They don't believe it. And what's more, when adults fail and when adult reputation is damaged or destroyed, adults often have to leave their community, or at least they feel like they do. There seems to be no path to recovery or repair. And this is sad because it's just as true for Christians as well as everybody else. Often churches operate on a one strike and you're out policy. Scandals destroy churches every day. Congregation members discover that someone in their midst is a liar or is deeply selfish or is violent or is cruel or is wicked or is a cheat. Or the church discovers that the pastor is arrogant or insecure or both or abusive, or corrupt, or a coward, or a manipulator. And when the truth is exposed, there seems to be no choice but for the person to leave. Their reputation is damaged beyond repair. Nobody's ever gonna trust them again. 
And amongst those who do the casting out, there's always a couple people who are self-aware enough to think, I hope nobody ever finds out that I do the very same thing that that person just got kicked out for. And so many people live in fear of their neighbors and community around them finding out who they really are. Y'all, this is a great tragedy. So many Christians in churches live in fear of their brothers and sisters in the church finding out who they really are. Because if they did, they'd have to leave. It's as if our identity lives and dies in the mouth of other people. Now, this has been a cheerful conversation so far, hasn't it? How we doing? (laughs) You okay? (laughs) Turn to the front cover of the liturgy. Let's look at something together. This is an old painting from 1494. It's called The Colony of Apelles, and it's by Botticelli. Let me point out a few things that you might not have noticed when you first looked at this. All the way on the right-hand side, you have a king sitting on a throne. And if you look closely, you'll see that the ears of the king are enlarged. They are donkey ears, giant ears on the sides of his head. And the people around him, you might not know this, they have names. And their names are slander, ignorance, suspicion, envy, fraud, conspiracy. This is a picture of a person who is absolutely tormented by all the words that other people are saying about him. And this is the place that so many of us feel like we live, that we live in the chaos of what other people are always saying or not saying, either flattering or critiquing all the words people are saying about us. And when, we, when our ears get big <laughs> and our ears maybe become oversized, we listen too much to all of this stuff that other people are saying, it creates an unstable, insecure, anxious person. It creates a person who is either puffed up with pride or who is deflated, like a forgotten birthday balloon from last week. There's nothing sadder than a birthday balloon two weeks after the party. <laughs> right? And yet that's what so many of us feel like on the inside, just absolutely destroyed and deflated by other people's words. You ever met somebody who's so angry and defensive that you can't ever constructively critique them or even disagree with them? Or have you ever known somebody who's so fragile that you just don't have the heart to ever disagree with them, right? You know anybody like this? You know one person like this if you know me, right? Uh, you might be like this too, though, huh? Maybe we are like this. Question for you to think about later this week. If you get a chance to meet with one of, one of your, your small groups, you might ask this question to each other. How have other people's words impacted and formed your sense of identity? How have other people's words impacted and formed your sense of identity? Now, as we ask this question, it might be good for us to wonder, since we are in a church and it is Sunday morning, how was Jesus impacted and formed by other people's words? You know, Jesus cares a lot about who people say that he is. But interestingly, he's not defined by who people say that he is. Some people praised Jesus. And if if you know the story of the gospel accounts, there are people who wanted to make Jesus king by force. Did he let it stroke his ego? Did he let it go to his head? No. You know, as popular as you are, you've never been more popular than Jesus at the height of his ministry, right? Jesus fed the 5,000. Everybody was like, this is it. Look no further. We found our guy, right? You've never been that popular. 
<laughs> Sorry. In the same way, some people hated Jesus. They wanted to kill him. Was he crushed by it? No. Did you just adopt this like, well, I'll show them. You just wait till the resurrection, right? No. <laughs> he didn't have that chip on his shoulder towards people, right? As much as you've been hated, uh, you've never been more hated than Jesus. Did Jesus just therefore tune everybody out and have like a, like, I don't care about my reputation tattooed on his shoulder, right? No. Jesus actually kept asking people what they thought about him and what he was doing. Jesus cared about what people said about him. But Jesus did not allow other people's words to form his identity. Or let me reframe that. He did not allow the, the words of the crowd to form his identity. But he did allow somebody else's words to form his identity. And do you know whose words those were? They were the words of God the Father. Some of you might have been here a couple weeks ago on Epiphany Sunday. It was a baptism Sunday. We read together the story of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. What happens? The heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove, and the voice of God the Father speaks to God the Son, saying, you are my beloved Son. In you, I am well pleased. It's an identity moment. And it's the moment when Jesus receives and is affirmed in his own identity from the Father. He does let somebody else's words form his identity. He's just careful about who it is. And from that place of security in his own identity, Jesus then cares about whether, what other people say about him. But here's his motive. He cares about what other people say because he desires a relationship with them. So of course he cares about what they think because he cares about them. Jesus asked Peter who people say that he is. And Peter kind of gives, you know, hey, here are a couple theories that are floating around in the ether out there. And then Jesus says, okay, yeah, but, but what about you? And Peter names Jesus as the Christ. And then, interestingly, I bet Peter didn't see this coming, Jesus then names Peter. Identity speaks to identity. As Peter recognizes the identity of Jesus, so Peter receives his own true identity. And that dynamic that is at play in this scene in the Gospel of Matthew is the same dynamic that is at play for every single one of us. As you recognize the identity of Christ, so you receive your own identity. Why? Why does it work that way? Let me unpack this. Words will always be morsels that sink down into your inner being and form who you are. God knows this. The word was made by God's word. The world was made by God's word and the world is sustained by God's word. Humans, human creatures are word formed people. They always have been and they always will be. You know, just as an aside, this is kind of one human point where psychologists and psychiatrists and theologians all agree. Humans are word formed people. And Jesus is God's word spoken to you. In Jesus, God's word enters the world in flesh and by faith, Jesus can be the morsel that sinks down into your inner person, into your identity and takes up residence there. And there in the core of your being, with all the chaos of other people's words about you kind of swirling around you, the flattery and the critique and everything in between, Jesus quietly whispers a different story about you and about who you are and about where you belong and what your purpose is and everything else about your whole person. The question is not, listen if you can, the question is not, will you let words form your identity? 
The question is, which word? Whose words get to form your identity? Will it be the word of God made flesh in Jesus that says to you, you are created, you are good, you are beloved, you are chosen, you are adopted, you belong? Or will it be the words of others who flatter you with shallow compliments or who tear you down with savage critique or maybe both, first one, then the other? And you might imagine Jesus having some version of this conversation with you. Jesus comes to you and he says, who do people say that I am? And you just think for a moment about what it's like to live in Richmond in 2024. Who do people say Jesus is? And then Jesus leans in and he says, okay, but now what about you? Who do you say that I am? And you might think about all the good, terrible, beautiful, ugly, and everything in between different ways that you relate to Jesus. And how might you answer that question? Who do you say Jesus is? And then Jesus flips the script and he then leans in and he says, okay, but, but who do people say you are? And you might begin to just think back over the course of your life and think, who did my parents say that I was? Who do my teachers and coaches and other authority figures, who do my friends, who do my enemies, <laughs> who do other people say that I am? And then Jesus leans in even closer. At this point, he's whispering in your ear and he says, but do you know who I say that you are? You know, the reality is, friends, that you and I, we are simply not as great as we wish we were, right? Isn't that the truth? But we are not as hopeless as we fear we are. In the gospel, you are safe, you are loved, you are accepted, you are desired, and you are free. And so as you practice listening to the words of Jesus and having this conversation with Jesus about your identity, everybody else's words are sorted into their proper place. Now, here's a really important distinction, okay? We're almost done, but we gotta be clear on this. At this point, as the sermon's winding down, here's what I think you expect me to say. I, th <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> I think that you think that I'm going to say, Listen to God, don't listen to other people. No. How could the, how could the gospel conclusion be, don't listen to other people? <laughs> Go in peace. No. <laughs> that, is not, that is not what happens. As we practice listening to the words of Jesus, everybody else's words are put in their proper place. You become free to genuinely listen to other people without being defined by other people. It changes the way you hear other people's words. Let's just think about our ears for a moment, okay? It allows your ears to resist flattery. Flattery just starts to bounce off of you. Your Instagram post gets 13,000 likes. Who cares? Seriously, who cares? Nobody cares. Turn to the person next to you. Do you care? They do not care. People say you're gorgeous. People say you're brilliant. People say you're the kindest, the nicest, the best. Please, you let it bounce off of you. Flattery never gets, you don't let flattery sink down. You know better. You know the truth, right? <laughs> it also allows your ears to resist the harsh attacks. Somebody really goes after you. You let it bounce off. It doesn't sink down. Other people's criticism doesn't derail you. The gospel enables you, rather, to really listen to people it allows you to listen to encouragement when it's given. It allows you to listen to correction when it's given. You can, you can receive genuine encouragement and you can let genuine encouragement sink in. 
Somebody, somebody gives you a, a real, a healthy morsel <laughs> of genuine encouragement. By the way, if you want to know the difference between flattery and encouragement, flattery speaks to performance. Encouragement speaks to identity. Flattery says, you performed great. Encouragement says, I value you, right? And it means that you can actually let those encouraging words sink in. And instead of like deflecting and resisting, oh, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, brush, like you can just say thank you. Thank you, I received that. It also allows you to receive constructive correction. It means maybe for the very first time, secure in who God says you are, you, your, your ears might get unclogged and open up and other people might be able to give you just some gentle and loving correction. And by the way, the difference between savage critique and loving correction is that savage critique is about performance, right? You didn't perform well. Gentle correction says, I know who you are and I actually value who you are. Now, here's something we might change, right? So gentle correction only happens when identity is secure. You have to know we're not canceling each other. We're not breaking the relationship. The relationship, identity speaking to identity, is secure. And within the context of that security, oh, self-awareness and growth, giving and receiving of correction to each other, people actually start to change and grow and improve for the better. Okay, that's all the ears. What about our mouths? It changes the way we speak to each other. We stop flattering each other. You know, flattery is a great way to build social capital. Knock it off. You don't have to do that anymore, right? And from one parent kind of speaking to, I know not everybody's a parent, but if you are a parent and you have kids, you don't have to flatter your kids. You can encourage your kids, but you don't have to flatter them. And if you flatter your kids, what are you doing? Just think back to like 12 minutes ago. Flattering your kids sets them up to either be defensive or a victim, right? It sets up a weak identity. So parents, we don't have to flatter our kids, but we can encourage them. We can build each other up with real encouragement that speaks to the heart. It also allows us in our words to resist the natural temptation and tendency to gossip. And my favorite phrase, gently slander. <laughs> because if you aggressively slander another person, as and everybody here's a Christian, but if you're a Christian and you aggressively slander someone else, it kind of reflects poorly on you. Now you look ugly. Now you look mean. Most of us are way too socially sophisticated to do that. But we will gently bump other people off the cliff, right? Just lightly throw them under the bus, right? Gently. It means, it means you can stop doing that. You can stop critiquing and tearing down. And as we, as we start to use our ears and our mouths in different ways, it means that within the context of a church family, we can have very short memories of other people's sins and very long memories of each other's virtue. And if there is a need to offer constructive correction, which is basically another way of saying protecting someone from the error of their ways, right? Protection comes from love. So offering gentle correction, simply protecting another person from the error of their ways, you do it to their face and with the offer of support. No one will receive correction from you if you're also canceling them or cutting them out of their life or denouncing them. They need to know that your view of their identity is positive before you offer to correct their actions. And when churches, when 
congregation members begin to behave this way with each other, which is to say, as we practice the gospel of identity and each other's reputation, churches become places where reputations can be healed and restored. You know, Peter had a very different conversation with Jesus at a different part in the story where Peter goes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, uh, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody? How about seven? Which in Peter's imagination is really generous. Like not one strike and you're out. How about seven strikes before you're out? And how does Jesus reply? He says, (laughs) come on, Peter. Um, How about 70 times seven, which is Hebrew for infinity, an unlimited number of strikes. What if churches were these communities, these little outposts of the kingdom of God in society, where you had an unlimited number of strikes? It's not one strike, it's not seven strikes, it's no one here is gonna ever cancel you. No one's gonna exile you, no one's gonna kick you out. What if that was part of the missional presence of the church? What if over time churches became the last place somebody could go when everybody else has kicked them out. If you've been canceled, what's the one place that'll take you in? The church will take you in. Y'all, the last place we practice this every week, if you're thinking to yourself, how do I remember this? How do I keep this fresh in my mind and my imagination? Because it's one thing to hear this and think about it right now. It's another thing to wake up tomorrow and actually live this way. So how do we, how do we remember this together? We remember this at the table every week. Because you know what you do here? Here's what you do with your body. Here is a delicious morsel. It's not flattery from God. It's genuine love from God proved with sacrifice, proved with blood. You take it, you eat it. It goes down into the inner part of your body, as the proverb says. And the bread and the wine become a sacrament that strengthen your identity in God. Here is God's love to you in Jesus. Eat it, take it. Let it become who you are. Friends, you are not what people say about you. That's good news. And the even better news is you are what God has said to you in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, would you help us by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit to be secure in you, no matter what flattery or criticism comes our way. Would you do this in the wonder and glory and joy of your gospel in our hearts? And would you help us to practice this with one another? We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.